Trek Profiles Podcast, Episode 17, recorded October 2018. the Trek Profiles podcast, where each episode we sit down with a Star Trek fan. We learn their Trek story and we try to figure out why Star Trek matters to them, to you, and to all of us. I'm John, your intrepid host of this whole enterprise, and I welcome you to this, the Trek Profiles podcast, episode 17. If you wish to get in touch with us, you can reach us at feedback at trekprofiles.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Trek Profiles. If you wish to leave us a voicemail, you may do that by sending us a voice message using the Tricorder Transmissions website or leave a message at our automated line at 609-512-LLAP. That's 609-512-5527. Warning! As we record this, we are in the middle of the Short Trek series, so all previous Trek content up to and including that point is fair game and may be discussed on this episode. You have been warned, human. With me, as always, is the incredibly fabulous, always friendly, generally felicitous M5 Multitronic Unit. M5 available. Let's have the messages and news, M5. Announcements displayed. The Trek Profiles Podcast is a proud member of the Tricorder Transmissions Network. If you haven't checked out our other shows on the network, please visit the Tricorder Transmissions website at www.thetricordertransmissions.com and check out the wonderful content posted there by the other shows. There is so much great Trek content there. You're going to find something you like, I guarantee it. And if you do find something you like, either in this show or elsewhere on the network, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Support at any level gets you access to extended and early releases, uncut episodes, and admittance to our Patreon hangouts, which are always a zany and crazy time. I'm usually on those Patreon hangouts, and I'd love to see you there. And if you are listening to us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or any other platform, we would be so grateful for your likes, your shares, your five-star reviews, or your recommendations. These things help other Star Trek fans find our shows, and we appreciate them so very much. Show notes are posted over at trekprofiles.com, where I've been posting somewhat detailed show notes and extra info for each episode, so check that out if you haven't. Kobayashi Maru time. Let's review the questions from episode 15 with John Champion. Question 1. You graduated at the bottom of your class from Starfleet Academy. Such a shame. Only two jobs are left to pick from when it's your turn. Triple Wrangler or Holodeck Cleanup Crew. John said Triple Wrangler, and all of you did as well, by 75-25%. to There was a bit of a debate online about if everything in the holodeck actually gets cleaned up or not when they turn the system off. Yikes. Question two, what's your Klingon weapon, the Batleth or the Mechleth? John said the Batleth, and the Twitter tweeps agreed by 67 to 33%. Question three, time for a traditional Bajoran meal. Will it be Hasparat souffle, very warm, or groat cakes with the optional squill syrup? John said Hasparat, but all of you preferred the traditional Bajoran breakfast of groat cakes with the syrup. Lita, we can only assume, is pleased. Question four, let's have a relaxing game. Will it be 3D chess versus the Cytherian enhanced Reg Barkley or a Stratagema against a Zakdorn master strategist called Rami? 
John said Barkley, and all of you did as well by 61 to 39%. And finally, the M5 outdid himself on this last Kobayashi Maru question. Just for John Champion, bonk bonk on the head or you see Timmy. My guest said, you see Timmy, but all of you are apparently much more violent and wanted the bonk bonk on the head by a crushing uh, 78 to 22%. Be sure to follow me on Twitter, and you can have your say on these polls, too, after each episode. All right, enough of that. Let's get this interview running. Hit it, M5. M5 acknowledges... His favorite alien is Elam Garrick, and his favorite class is the Excelsior class, and he is currently re-watching Deep Space Nine. You can find him on the Twitter at Ronald Foose. He is from Sacramento, California, North America Earth, in Sector 001. It's Tyler Cardwell. Welcome, Tyler, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Tyler, are you a Star Trek fan? Yes, I am. How long have you been a Star Trek fan? Really, as, you know, as far back as I can remember, one of my first memories is watching the original series reruns with my dad. And just kind of really getting into, you know, the the fun of Star Trek. When was that about? Oh, man. I mean, it had to be like early 90s. How, how old were you? I think I was about uh, six or seven, you know, just watching, uh, watching reruns on TV. And then TNG came out. So did you start watching it right away when it was in first broadcast? I don't think we ever watched it when it was first broadcast. I have to look up to see what days it came out because, you know, back in the olden days, you had to be there to watch the show or, you know, hook up your VCR to to tape them. But I do remember having going over to having my parents and all of us go over to my aunt and uncle's house to watch the final episode of The Next Generation so I remember that happening, and I do remember watching a lot of Deep Space Nine, catching those episodes as they came out when they first aired, kind of in that second half of the of Deep Space Nine season. Oh, nice. You, you want to hear my Star Trek confession? Yes. I actually didn't watch All Good Things until about nine months or about a year ago. Oh, wow. I was somewhere in my life where I didn't have, I wasn't able to watch it. I wasn't, I wasn't in, around a TV when it originally came on and for just some bizarre reason, I missed it. And I just, and then when streaming came out and all that, and I got the DVDs, I just kind of held off until I completed my complete TNG rewatch. So I did a whole rewatch before I watched it. Nice. So it gave you a lot of the context. Yeah, it was my, my little Star Trek confession. But enough about me. Let's talk about you. Sure. So then you watched uh, Deep Space Nine in original broadcast, and of course, Voyager was then happening too. Did you catch that one? That one was more sporadic. Growing up, we went to church on Wednesday nights, and at least for us, it would air on Wednesday nights. So unless like we stayed home sick or just you know some fluke of something happening, I didn't catch a lot of them. I, I feel like I did see some of them, like some of the major like the season premieres and season enders. But most of the episodes I, I I never caught until rewatching or reruns. And then came Enterprise. Yeah. And that one that came out in the time where we had a DVR. So we could set the DVR and then record it. And I've seen every episode of Enterprise probably two or three times. So as we sit here and record this in, what is it, is it fall yet? Or maybe late summer, I guess, 2018. Have you seen it all? Have you caught up? Or, or is there still some stuff you're missing? I might be missing a couple episodes of Voyager, but I'm pretty sure I've I've seen I've seen TOS, I've seen the animated series, I've seen all the films. Next I've seen all of Next Gen a few times, DS9 a couple times, Enterprise a few times and Discovery twice. 
Did you catch the short tracks? I caught the first one. So I think that is that the only one that's out yet when we're at this point? Yes, that's the only one that's out right now as we record this today. What what'd you think of it? I thought it was I thought it was interesting. It's it's a fun little kind of side story. I, I was like I like when a show does something that they don't normally do. So with Discovery, it's very, you know, oh, here's the Klingons and we need to deal with this whole, all these, all these issues that Discovery tackles. And then whenever they do a a, a little, uh, you know, a small, they step off to the side and go, okay, here's what Tilly's doing. Those are always really interesting. The one, I I have extensive thoughts on Short Treks, which would probably take longer to talk about than the episode actually was in duration. But the the one thing I'll say is that the comedic genius of uh, Mary Wiseman cannot be denied. Yeah, she she made that one. So do you go back and rewatch old episodes or are you pretty well set with how you've consumed all your Star Trek? I I mean, I feel like my whole life is is one big rewatch of all of Trek. About... I think about five or six years ago, I started rewatching the original series, and then I started watching, when that finished, I did the animated series, watched a couple of the movies, got into the next generation, and this is just over this, like, kind of a casual, decade-long rewatch of Trek, I guess I'm kind of doing, because I, I kind of have to fit it in between real life, real life things. Are you watching them in order, or are you kind of skipping around and picking your favorites? I'm I'm trying to do in order. If there's one episode that I know that I've seen several times and I just know like the back of my hand and I just not not interested in seeing it again, I'll I'll skip one. But it's kind of on a case by case basis. But in general, trying to go in order. So I believe you mentioned in one of your emails to me that you're a, a parent. Uh, if I may inquire, how, how old are your kids? Seven and five. So are you watching Star Trek with them? They're, I'm trying to see the goal, you know, the goal is to like, oh, I'll introduce my kids to Star Trek like my dad introduced me. And I don't know, they've caught a few things and been interested in a couple of episodes, but it's not like they're glued to the TV. They have a lot of distractions and, you know, they want to play video games and play on their tablets and kind of do play with their own stuff. So I'm, I'm working on it. I'm hopefully, you know... The more I have it on the background, the more it might latch on to them. I feel you on that one, Tyler. I mean, my kid will watch a Jedi lightsaber duel like Darth Maul in, uh, what was that one? The, the Phantom Menace. He will just sit there and watch that lightsaber duel on repeat like 17 times in a row. And, you know, you put on Star Trek, and it's basically a bunch of dudes standing around talking. And it just doesn't have the same allure for a certain age group, you know? Yeah, definitely. But I'm sure at some point it's... You know, they'll, they'll, something will catch their eye and make them start asking questions like, oh, what's, what's that guy? What, what's his deal? And then you kind of, that gets your, that gets the foot in the door and be able to introduce the rest to it. Do you watch it on streaming or do you, do you use discs? I wish I had the discs. It's just so, it's so expensive and, and everything is on Netflix now. So it's, I'm, I've been streaming. Cool, cool, cool. You a collector? It's another thing I wish I was. I just don't have space and I don't have budget, you know, you know, school tuitions and all kinds of, you know, real life stuff always gets in the way of a lot of those fun things. But I, I, I'd love to have like a whole wall of, of uh, starship models and, uh, you know, you know, that, that painting that's that Picard has in his, his ready room. I'd love to have that on, on a wall somewhere, but I just. Of the ship. Yeah. Yeah. The Enterprise. I'd, I'd love to have something like that, but I, I just don't, I don't have space for it. You know, it's. I think it's something that surprises people who who know me, and they they come over to my house and they know that I'm a serious Trek nerd, and they're like expecting some kind of Trek shrine or something, and there really isn't. 
<laughs> I mean, the the amount of Trek stuff that I have is so incredibly small. It's like not even worth talking about. You know, at at, at work, I have one little Eagle Moss Enterprise, like the little tiny like Matchbox size ones, and that's it. That's the sum total of stuff I have <laughs> at work is one little thing. And then at home, I don't have up. There's nothing. I have to like just a few little things and, you know, stuff basically I kept from conventions, which basically fits in a one small box that's like under a bed. And that's it. I have a couple of toys that I had when I was a kid that I still have. But, you know, they're my kids. I know my kids will play with them and like break them and or wear them out and stuff. So I'm like, I just want to hold on to these. I'll, I'll get you your own Star Trek stuff if, you, if you're really into it. But yeah, so I, I try and I have a couple of things, but that's really the extent of my collection. Well, you know, they have the Mego sets at Target right now. Yeah, I, have to, I, need to, I need to get into those. Well, hey, they're great gifts for the kids. You ever been to a Star Trek convention? No, I haven't. I haven't really done any conventions. I'm also a big Star Wars fan, and I've just never... I know, it's always... It feels really overwhelming it, as, as, as a newcomer to kind of go into that of just, like, I, I don't... It's a big commitment of time and money, and I'm not... I know that I'll have fun, but in the back of my mind, I'm just like, is it going to be worth all the, the, the time and the commitment? So I haven't gone yet, but maybe if I can get a group of friends or something together and make a big, make a big deal about it, maybe one day. Well, I know that you know uh, Crystal, and she just went to the first her first uh, Star Trek Las Vegas just this past year. So, and she enthusiastically endorsed it, I would say. Yeah, I heard. She's, she, she ranted about it. So maybe, maybe next year. And for all the listeners out there, if you are interested in conventions, I have to recommend on Tricorder Transmissions, we have a podcast specifically devoted to convention going called Shore Leave, formerly with Jeff and Heather and now currently with Marina and Jesse. So they cover nothing but conventions on Shore Leave and what the experience is like and how to go and what the ticket prices are and where to go, what to do, how to be, and you know all the things involved with that. So, And plus, we also have an STLV 101 series on Tricorder. So if anyone is thinking about going to STLV, there's a... And oh, by the way, there's a, a really terrible guy, John somebody or other, and he's on one of those talking about living in Las Vegas and going to the convention. So, But uh, there's lots of good information there if uh, anyone's interested. So just for the benefit of any listeners out there. And for what it's worth, Tyler, I would totally recommend it. It's really a different experience when you're among the tribe. But... There's one thing I, I want to ask you about, which is you said you're a big Star Wars fan. So I feel like I have to ask you, do you want to weigh in on Star Trek versus Star Wars? And do you feel that it's a versus or is it both or is it either or? Uh, what, what are your thoughts? I'm a big fan of both. I never understood trying to pick one or the other or one is better than the other or, you know, trying to say that, oh, well, Star Trek is more cerebral and, you know, Star Wars is more just, you know, light action and, you know, I've never been a fan of trying to compare or, you know, pit them against each other. Oh, what, you know, would the a Star Destroyer beat the Enterprise in a, in a space fight? It's just like, they're two different things. It's it's like trying to compare Lord of the Rings and Star Trek. Like, they're just different. And it's okay to like both. And there's nothing wrong with either one of them. It's interesting that you say that, because I, I think that those kinds of things, like, you know, could the Millennium Falcon beat up the galaxy enterprise or something you know i mean who who honestly could care about such things but one of the things i've noticed having a, a i'm relatively active on twitter and my show account trek profiles i tweet out basically all star trek and fandom type related stuff so it's very much focused on that and when i look at the tweets that seem to get whatever for whatever reason the most retweeted 
it's when I'm talking about things like the size of the bridge on the Voyager or things like where is the Bajoran earring on this particular character in an episode. And like people really love the minutia of some of this stuff I found, which, you know, it's great. But I feel like it's just something that it's a little bit of harmless fun that people like to engage in, but they really like to engage in it. It's it's really interesting to me. You know, I'll I'll sit there and I'll really try to put together a tweet about, you know, some really deep and philosophical issue and like, you know, three people say something and then I'll put something out there about Bajoran earrings and, you know, 3,000 likes and shares. It's amazing. Yeah, and it's always really interesting if you think about the the writer's room where a lot of that data comes from and they're just like, oh yeah, we just we just needed it to serve this little story thing and it it's they didn't put as much anywhere near the thought that the fans tend to put into things and i always think that's really funny well i realize this is a controversial opinion and i realize a lot of people would take exception to what i'm about to say and i'm curious to hear what you think about it but in its purest form i'd say that star trek canon doesn't even exist not not that you know what is or isn't canon it's that it's just a non-entity it's it's not a thing there's not some holy book somewhere with all the revealed truths about star trek in it that, that actually has any weight because the people who are making Star Trek, and I'm not talking about Discovery, I'm talking about all the people who have ever made Star Trek, never felt particularly bound to anything that came before. Yeah, and that's something I could, I think I've kind of, I because I used to be very much like, oh, Enterprise isn't bad because it actually does tie things together and like trying to, I always felt like I was defending Enterprise because people complained about it. And I was like, no, it makes sense. They never, you know, the the Ferengi in that episode, it makes sense because they never actually say that they're Ferengi. And that way it's okay when way off in the future, the Ferengi reveal themselves and everyone's surprised. Like it works or the Romulans. But, and I think those still work. But it, recently I've come to kind of accept that, you know, it's just a TV show. It's just a set of movies. It's okay that not everything connects perfectly. I think a, a discovery has really helped push that for me because like, I want everything to connect perfectly and interlock and be this one seamless thing, but it's really not. And it's okay that the discovery has lots more, a lot more blinking lights than the TOS Enterprise or they have that hologram technology that we've never seen before in the future, but... It's on it's on discovery and it's commonplace. It's okay. It's just a it's just a show. And that's not the part you're supposed to be focusing on. Well, I'd uh, challenge you on that there, Tyler, because there's a particular DS9 episode. I don't remember which one it is, but they install a hollow communicator on the Defiant and Cisco is like really excited about it. And it's like, hey, have we tried the hollow communicator? Wow, hollow communicators, this is amazing, you know? And then of course we go to Discovery, which takes place like what, you know, 150, 200 years allegedly before that. And like everybody's using hollow communicators, right? Right. And yeah, that's one of the things that's that that hollow communicator is the thing that I've really had to grapple with in my head. And I'm at the point where I'm just... It's okay. I'm just going to let it go. Maybe there's, maybe if you really want to think about it, because Discovery has a lot of Section 31 connections, maybe it's a Section 31 technology that then they they installed it on Discovery and it's not as commonplace. And then the just Section 31 like classified it again and took it away. They had it on the Shenzhou. Yeah. Okay. That's true. Okay. So that blows that theory out of the water. Right, the the Admiral Admiral Anderson was talking to Captain Georgiou on it. Yeah, 
That's true. Okay. I was wrong. Yeah, it's just something you have to deal with, fans. Like, I think it's 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 cool that we have it on Discovery as a thing, and I wish we saw it in other places, but it's just a show. You just got to deal with it. Yeah. And, you know, if you try to if you try to actually answer these questions, you're going to get yourself in in just mental gymnastics that are just not worth it. I mean, I was talking to someone again on Twitter and one of the questions was, when was first contact between humans and aliens? And we're going to talk about this a little bit later on because it ties in one episode that the M5 is selected for us. But just, you know, everyone might say, oh, well, when the Vulcans landed and, you know, Zephram Cochran, right? Which, by the way, is not the actual Zephram Cochran that we saw in TOS. It was a different guy. Yep. Yeah, right. <laughs> but well, no, because then, you know, there was an Enterprise episode that talks about this. But then again, in TOS, we have who mourns for Adonais and he was an alien and that he was talking to the ancient Greeks. So wasn't that first contact? And was there even things might have been before that? I mean, you know, it's there's no way to answer these questions. It's it's a very fans like to talk about this stuff, but I think it's just harmless fun. I, I don't think that that Star Trek canon is any kind of revealed truth that you can really cling to. It's uh, something that you just have to kind of enjoy, but but not think about too much. So I think I'm in agreement with you on that one. Yeah, definitely. And I do like, I do appreciate it when Star Trek tries to try, it acknowledges those problems, like the Klingon makeup differences between different shows. I appreciate when they go, okay, this is a big change between these two different things. Here's a We'll we'll talk about the augmented Klingons, and we'll try and we'll try and make some connections there. I appreciate when that happens. You ever put on a Star Trek uniform? I have a TOS gold T-shirt that I bought online with the the command symbol on it, and I've worn that around. But nothing nothing as fancy as what is shown on screen. Why would you wear it? What does it do for you? I think the main reason why I got it was. A lot of the clothing that I wore was just very simple black or just like maybe if it has like a logo on it, it would just be it would just be the logo of whatever thing like the show or the band or whatever. And I got that that TOS uniform because I was kind of like, you know what? I want to be more proud of of my fandom and the things that I like. Star Trek is a big deal for me and I never really represent that. So I I went online and I bought a shirt and I'd wear I wear it sometimes. So you're also a podcaster, am I right? Yes, I've got a couple of shows. And are any of them Star Trek related? No, one is music related and another is D&D. So I don't really have a lot of opportunity to talk about Star Trek. Uh, podcasts are kind of time consuming. I wish I had more time to do like a dedicated Star Trek show. I don't know what it would be about and I want to make sure I have a good premise, but you know, I'd I'd love to have a consistent thing where I just get to talk about Star Trek. So I'm kind of envious of you. Well, let's talk about how you got on the show, which was you used our contact form on the website and you just blindly sent me an email and you were quite insistent on, on being on the show, I noticed, because you kept following up and I would say, okay, I'm, I'm really filled up with guests right now. You know, try back in a couple weeks, try back in a month. Here's a form, fill this out. And, and you kept filling that stuff out. So you, you really wanted to get on the show. Why was it important to you to get on the show and, and tell, tell us your story? Well, I think because part of it is I don't have a, a Star Trek outlet in real life, or, you know, either through a podcast or I've got one coworker where we, t- we can talk about Star Trek. But other than that, it's just... You know, I just I watch it and I'll you know read stuff on online about it. But so I was like, this would be a really good way to. I found that verbalizing 
th things and talking about things really helped me think about them and you know it just it helps make it more real and it it's like it just it's another outlet to to explore my fandom fantastic then i think we sh we should continue that by talking about some episodes that the m5 has selected for us to talk about and i think i want to start with a little bit of an unconventional choice one of the episodes the m5 has selected for us is carbon creek an enterprise episode and this of course is the one where T'Pol is uh, having dinner with Archer and Trip, and they, for some reason, are looking up where she goes on her personal time, which, by the way, I found incredibly creepy and is worthy of comment as saying, none of your business, Captain, where I go on my time off, but so be it. They found out where she went on her time off, and she went to a little town in Pennsylvania, and they're like, why did you go there? And so she tells the story about how her ancestor actually made first contact in this little town in Pennsylvania. So why did the M5 flag this episode for us, Tyler? This one was really interesting for me because I'm a big fan of Vulcans as a, as a race. And it was really interesting to see Vulcans on Earth with and trying to interact with, with old-timey humans and try and keep their cover as pretending to be human and... There's just a lot of really cool little, you know, nods and scenes, and it was really interesting just to see how Vulcans interact with with the humans of the 19, I think it's 1950s. Yeah, late 1950s. I think it would have been around 57, 58, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah, so it was just, it was really interesting. And then, like, having uh, T'Pol's ancestor introduce Velcro to Earth was really interesting. It was just uh, kind of a cool little episode and character study. One of my favorite little trivias from this particular episode is that one of the Vulcans is named Mistral, and Mistral is actually the name of the guy who actually did invent Velcro. So it's a nice little in-joke there. Nice. Did you buy it? I mean, did it seem like something that was that could have actually have happened, you know, in-universe to you, or, or did it seem a little bit outlandish, or, or, you know, were you willing to give it the benefit of the doubt, or I don't know, how, how'd you feel about the whole idea of it? I, I thought it was a really cool idea. We get to see more of Vulcans and having them just wrestle with... I always find it interesting, is in Enterprise especially, where Vulcans have to deal with humans and how humans are illogical and just they're perplexing to Vulcans. And so just having the three of them stuck on Earth and just having to blend in and act like humans is just, is just really interesting. I have to admit, I just, I found it so endearing, the little bit at the end where Tamir, I think her name is? Yes. And she's on the train, you know, wearing that like 1950s dress and she's got the little sweater on, she's got a little bag and it's just like, it's just, it's so endearing. And I don't know what it was about that scene, but I just loved it so much and it was just so well done and so well filmed and I had totally forgotten or maybe I had never actually originally seen the episode, original broadcast, I'm not sure, but when she comes out with the little bag, I remember looking at the little bag. Going, oh, my God, that's so cute. She's got a little purse. And then, of course, we, we see it at the end, which is we see T'Pol actually having the purse. Mm -hmm. One of the conceits, I think, that was built into the episode, which then they kind of blew up right at the end, was T'Pol actually refuses to say whether or not the event actually happened at the end of the dinner. She's like, well, you told me to tell you a story, so I told you a story, right? And that sort of hints like, well, you know, this may not have happened. Right. But then she, she goes and pulls out the purse, so we know it did. 
I almost felt like in a way, I, I wonder if the episode would have been better if they would have left it more nebulous as opposed to giving us certainty about it. I don't know. What do you think? I kind of like that it was that we get to see as the audience that it probably did happen. But I like leaving it open to Trip and Archer where they just don't know, you know, they're left with the question. But one thing that I always think about is T'Pol didn't know she was going to tell the story when she, whenever the last time she boarded the Enterprise from Earth or Vulcan. So she's had this purse on the ship for a while. And so that means that this purse is something that is probably sentimental to her. And Vulcans aren't supposed to be sentimental. So, like, why does she have this purse on the Enterprise when, you know, it, it's just a purse. It's just an object. You know, it shouldn't mean anything to her. her. It's something that her ancestor had years ago. But why is this important enough to to her that she brought it on the Enterprise to be close to her? It's just that's that's the part that I always really start, you know, have to I, I think about. I think that the Vulcans do have a strong sense of I don't want to say ancestor worship, but I, I guess I would say ancestor reverence, uh, which I think is very clear in some of the episodes and in some of the movies in particular. I, I think it could, certainly could be part of that. I don't know if I would call it sentimental, although you know perhaps that might be a human characterization for a, a Vulcan sensibility. But I do think there is something there that, that Vulcans really do have a sense of ancestry. And I mean, even going back to Amok time, there was all this talk about Spock's family and, you know, how his family had gone back for all these generations and it was, you know, a, a, he, he was kind of a big deal, uh, even though a lot of the people, other people on the ship didn't know that. But I, I could see that. I, I was OK with that. I was OK with that. Now, I just because I, I, when you're watching the episode, you don't know that she has the bag. Right. But first you see the little scene with her ancestor walking around. And I was just like, this is so cute. And, and then she pulls out the purse. But I, I could I can easily make headcanon out of that one. It, it didn't bother me too much, but I liked it. Yeah. And I do think that Vulcans, I think one of the things that Enterprise does is show that Vulcans do have, do have emotions. They're just buried deep down uh, that they, and they don't want to acknowledge it. It's one of the flaws that Vulcans have, there may have, that Enterprise presents with it to us. And so I, I, that's one thing I do like about Enterprise is that it, you do see that the, you know, the Vulcans claim to be, oh, we're devoid of emotion. We don't have we don't have any of these flaws that humanity has and we, and they look down on humanity, but then you start to see some cracks through to Paul and like, no, maybe they do have some, you know, there's some sentimentality and there's some emotion there that they just don't want to acknowledge. I think you've got it surrounded there, my man. You know, it's, it's just a story that people tell about the Vulcans that they don't have emotions, but it's not something that is in any way ever been true. It's just that they consider it an incredible social faux pas to demonstrate or acknowledge emotion. Uh, it's not that they don't have them. It's that they don't show them or talk about them. Uh, that's a good way of seeing it. I like that. All right. Let's talk about a Deep Space Nine episode. Let's talk about one that uh, certainly got the producers of the show in a little bit of hot water with another film studio. Let's talk about Our Man Bashir, which is one of these very sort of typical holodeck run amuck stories that they seem to love to tell. I have a general predilection against holodeck stories in general because it, it removes the reality of the situation, right? It's not about our characters anymore facing like a real threat. It's sort of imaginary. So I, I kind of, I'm not usually a big fan of holodeck episodes. But here we have Bashir living out his 007 James Bond fantasy. And of course, Garrick just 
intrudes uh, without permission, which, by the way, I consider to be a terrible faux pas and terribly obnoxious. I, I can't imagine ever walking into the middle of someone else's holodeck experience. God knows what you're going to find in there. But Garrick does it. And it's amazing they never think to lock the door or something like that. It's very strange. But in any event, they have this uh, spy experience with all the characters from the outside the holodeck playing key roles because they've been trapped inside and so forth. So why is this an episode that the M5 said we should talk about? I think it kind of goes back to what I said where I enjoy when a show does something that is not not normal, not normally what they do. And so this is a nice little episode where we don't get any huge, you know, we don't, we're not dealing with, with Bajorans versus the Cardassians. We just have this nice little episode where Bashir gets to just be Bashir and do whatever he wants to do. And apparently that is be pretend to be a spy in the holodeck. And, and I do totally agree with you on the, on people barging into the uh, holodeck like and that's a consistent thing that we've seen you know in in next generation and deep space nine where it's just like how like what changed to where we don't knock when we open open doors anymore especially in a place where it's a complete fantasy and who knows what you could be walking into in somebody else's personal time like that's that's crazy i i think that and this is a a diversion here, but I'm free to explore it if, if you want to. It seems to me that there's many dystopian elements within the Federation. In other words, we've seen things like a complete lack of privacy. They don't seem to honor or respect privacy at all in the Federation. So here's an example of people just barging into other people's holodecks, right? There's a, a TNG episode, I recall, where LaForge decides to go through another character's personal logs, and he didn't seem to need anyone's permission to do so. He just said, bring up so-and-so's personal logs. I want to review them for because reasons. And there they were. And I thought, that seems to me like a horrible breach of some sort of social norm. But no one seemed to care about it. And there's a lot of this kind of stuff, like just in Carbon Creek, that T'Pol takes some personal time, which she's allowed to do. She goes and does what she wants to do. Then she comes back to work. And the captain is like, now, why did you go do this on your personal time? Like, why did you go to this place? Please tell me about it. First of all, creepy as heck, dude. Step off, right? (laughs) And I can't even imagine that anyone would feel that that would be okay to do. I find it just a very weird thing that has been very consistent in Star Trek, I think, that they just don't value personal privacy at all. It's bizarre. I don't know. Maybe I'm off base here, but what's your reaction? I think I agree. Uh it's it's something that it's really weird that they never acknowledge that nobody ever says oh hey hey dude back off this is my personal time like nobody ever pushes back on that so it's it's weird that they've just never it's something that happens consistently and no one ever acknowledges as i watched this episode i did it as part of a disciplined rewatch where i watched all of deep space 9 straight through right one episode after the other in sequence And, you know, obviously there were breaks. I mean, I didn't sit and do it all in one sitting, but I I did a very disciplined, consistent rewatch. And one of the things I noticed in doing the rewatch is I think different elements of storytelling will emerge over time in a binge that they won't necessarily emerge if you're just watching it week after week. And an example of that is this episode, because we learn that Bashir likes to play spy. And he finds it fun. He does it for recreation. He enjoys it. And then later on in Deep Space Nine, 
he actually gets turned into a full-on legit spy. <laughs> and he does not like that at all. <laughs> and it's just a really nice sequence and a really nice little mini arc for the character I noticed. That, you know, he's wishing for this thing. He's interested in this thing. The thing actually happens, and he's like, oh, do not want, right? And I just, that was just something I noticed. What did you think of his particular arc in this case, ending up in Section 31 and dealing with Sloan and, and, and all of that craziness? I do, I do like that arc, especially when you, if you start, it, start the arc at him talking to Garrick and kind of pushing and prodding. It's like, oh, you're, you're, you're a spy, aren't you? And like them kind of doing that little dance at the beginning. And, you know, where Garrick doesn't acknowledge that he's a spy. He's, oh, I'm just a simple tailor. And then kind of going into that where he's pretending to be a spy in the holodeck and then he gets to be a legitimate spy. And maybe it's, you know, it seems like it's not all it's cracked up to be or it's not something that uh, it's not as glamorous as the hollow novels make it out to be. I I like you. I, I really, I really like it. Let's continue with Deep Space Nine, and let's talk about In the Pale Moonlight, certainly a favorite that's come up on Trek Profiles before. Why did the M5 identify you with this episode? I don't know if I have anything new to say about it. It's it's this one episode that everybody loves, or everybody seems to love. I'm sure there's people who hate it. But it's the one where we get to see Cisco kind of start bending the rules. Why should we like an episode where our captain becomes complicit in murders? I'm being deliberately provocative here, so I just I just want to put that out there. No, that's good. That's 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 a good way to phrase it. I I like to think about this episode and put other captains in Cisco's position. Like if Picard was there, if Picard had to make that choice, I don't think he would do the same thing that Cisco would do. I think Picard would would keep to the the moral position that he always that he tends to have. And I think that maybe the Federation wouldn't exist anymore, or at least not in the same way that it ends up being at the end of Deep Space Nine. So it's like, it's kind of that question of, is it okay to let one or a few people die to save the Federation? So it's it's not necessarily like, I like it because, oh, this is, you know, this is a great thing and this is such a fun episode because captain's going to be complicit in the people's murder it's more of this it's a really interesting episode to think about and to kind of it asks hard questions and it's a good one that we have we as fans we can grapple with and that's something that trek doesn't do all the time one of the things i often try to do is to draw parallels between star trek and real life events and i like to think if this was happening in the real world how would this be Right. What would this what would we say about this? If this was happening like in 2018 United States or, or 1995 United States or, or 19, you know, 87 France, you know, just just the real world, you know, in some some context. Right. I'm American, so I happen to pick the United States, but I, I don't mean to do that intentionally. And here's a case where we have a military officer on his own. Taking decisions which really should belong in civilian elected authority. But he's unilaterally doing things which I think if a military officer in any modern democracy was doing, he would be taken out and literally cashiered out of the service for. If you need a real-life example, right, and this might be before your time, Tyler, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but 
back in the 80s, there was the Iran-Contra hearings. And at one point, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, which people can go Google, went before Congress. And the Congress was, I think, out for the president at the time, President Reagan. They were trying to implicate him in some, some, something that went on in, in Central America. And the details of it are unimportant. But the implication that Lieutenant Colonel North made was the president never ordered me to do any of the things that I did, which were most likely suspicious. It's that I knew he wanted them done, so I did them. And he didn't ask me to do them. He didn't tell me to do them. I just took independent action and did these things because I knew it's what he would have wanted. And Congress was like, well, when did he tell you? You know, it's like he didn't tell me to do any of these things. No one did told me to do these things. I did them all on my own. And this guy was pilloried for this, right? And I'm not saying whether he was right or wrong. I'm not expressing a political opinion about it. My only point is that here's a military guy who said, I took these major foreign policy decisions on my own. And people went berserk. And I think rightly so, because we don't expect military officers to be taking major foreign policy decisions upon themselves. And here we have an example that people find quite accessible and people seem to celebrate in Star Trek of someone doing just that. And I keep thinking to myself, I'm not sure that this is a really good thing. (laughs) I, I had a very different reaction to it when I saw it. I said, this is not good. This is very bad. And this is not to be celebrated. This is to be something to be scared of. But perhaps that was my own sense of it as I watched it. I don't know. Am I off base here? What do you think? No, I think you're completely on track. But I think that I, I think I understand why Cisco made those choices because in, I think in his mind it was the Federation. If if I don't make this call, then the Federation is going to be in real danger. And is it? It's. I think he's kind of asking that the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. That that argument to a degree, and I think for 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 Cisco. He made the call that it was better to sacrifice this Romulan ambassador and and then not tell anyone about it and kind of live with that with that pain, that that self conscious that guilty conscience, as he says it. And for Cisco, that is is better to keep the Federation intact than than uh, he's willing to compromise his morals for the good of the Federation. And I, you know, I'm not saying that that that's right or wrong. I think that, you know, I think that Picard would not have made that that choice. And, you know, that's I don't know. That's it's it's kind of those one of those questions that it's made to to be grappled with. I think that's part of the fun of the episode is is grappling with that. But I, I think that I was trying. I'm trying to make a larger point though, which is that it seems to me that in some ways the Federation seems to be under Starfleet control and not vice versa. Uh, Starfleet seems to run the the civilian government. It seems to me to be a military dictatorship in a lot of ways. And as an example of that, I'll, I'll give you one other piece of evidence, also from Deep Space Nine. I forget what episode it is, but it's towards the end when Bajor is about to sign the document joining the Federation. And they have like the, the giant meeting. And then at the last minute, I think Cisco convinces them not to do it because of the profits. But if you look at the room, it's entirely Starfleet officers at a diplomatic event. There's not a single civilian representative of the Federation government. It's entirely the military. And I just think to myself, is that really how that would be? Is, is that really what it would be? There wouldn't be a single Federation ambassador, a single Federation government 
member at, at, a, at a signing like this. It's all Starfleet officers. And I realize I am thinking way too much about this, but this is the kind of stuff that pops into my head when I watch these episodes. I realize it's a little loony, but there you go. No, I think that's I think that's a good that's a good criticism of, of the show, because I think it's easy for the writers to just say, oh, well, we'll just put a bunch of people in Starfleet uniforms in the, the background of this scene. And because it's a lot easier to do that than it is to figure out what the the whole political landscape of the Federation is and like really get some nut, nuts and bolts in there. It's and you have to and you only you only have what, 43 minutes to do the entire story. And it'd be kind of hard to try and wedge this, a lot of political stuff in there. I I think it'd be really interesting to explore that. And I kind of, one of my secret hopes is for this new Picard show that maybe we get to see some more political, political background on the Federation. So I, I think that'd be really fun to explore and establish. Not that we know anything about the Picard show, except for a very, very little bit that they've announced. But the one thing I am pretty well convinced of as we record this, and I'll be interested to hear your reaction to it, is that if you look at the way that TV is and all popular entertainment is today, I I don't think that there's especially, and I'm talking about male characters, adult male characters, I, I don't think there's a... Picard-like character allowed to exist in 2018 media. All the the modern male characters in popular entertainment are broken or insane or defective in some way. Like, you know, there you can you can have a Rick Grimes on Walking Dead. You can have a Logan from the, you know, the Logan in the Logan movie, right? Where he's like, you know, troubled by all these things that has happened in his life and he's, you know, dealing with his demons. You can have a Walter White on Breaking Bad. But you can't have a Picard. You can't have this guy who's like intellectually assured, who is confident in himself, who knows the right thing. Like that character just cannot exist in media today. And that has nothing to do with Star Trek. That's just the current moment. So I'm very well convinced, and especially based on what Patrick Stewart said at STLV on the stage, we are going to be seeing a very broken type dude (laughs) of some kind. He's not going to be the Picard that we knew. He's going to be damaged in some way. And the show might be about him trying to put himself back together or something else. I don't know. But I, the one thing I am absolutely sure of, it is not going to have any TNG flavor. It's not going to be about, you know, him, you know, giving a speech and setting things aright. It's going to be about him trying to put himself together and being very broken in some way. That's the only thing I'm convinced of. Everything else, I have no idea. What do you think? I yeah I think that that's very likely what is going to happen. It's going to be kind of it's going to be a lot closer to discovery than than the the next generation was. I but I I'm kind of hoping that the writers know that because when when it was announced on stage and everybody online was just flipping out about oh Picard is back like we get this we get this guy back, and I think that they have to know that if they people want Picard back. They don't necessarily want, I mean, they do want Patrick Stewart back, but I think a lot of, you know, fans want to see Picard back and Picard as this moral compass. And I think it'd be really interesting is if the Federation has gotten darker, similar to how the TV landscape has gotten darker. And then we see Picard, who is still kind of that beacon of moral goodness and he's and the show is about him dealing with how 
everybody else around him isn't. I think it would be interesting is if they kept Picard, this this moral compass for good, in a world where everything isn't as clean and bright and simple as good versus evil that the T, that TNG had. Yeah, I think that would be an interesting show to see Picard try and get, trying trying to elevate the rest of the Federation to what the ideals of the of TNG were. Does that make sense? No, it does. It does. And I, I think one of the things that I am positing in, in our discussion is that the Federation never was, in my opinion, a, a place of goodness and light. I think it's always been a little dark because of some of the things we've been talking about. It seems to have military control. It seems to be a place where privacy doesn't exist. But I think that people told themselves stories about it, right? Like, we're the good guys. Eh, I don't know. <laughs> you know? So we'll see. I'm excited to see it. I, I think, of course, Sir Pat is going to be amazing, as he always is. And I think it's going to be an interesting show. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Yeah. And I, and I do think that in the next generation... You know, it's like you said, everyone's, oh, yeah, we're the good guys. We're, we're, we're really awesome. We're the, you know, we're, we're perfection. Like we're, we're spreading this thing to the rest of the galaxy. And then that's what Deep Space Nine does a really good job of is showing the rest of the galaxy reacting to the Federation and that great conversation that Quark and Garrick have about root beer. And, you know, it's, it's insidious how the, the Federation operates. To the rest of the galaxy. You know, I'll say one thing about this. Since you mentioned Quark, he's probably, I don't want to say a character that I, I like. I don't want to say I like him. I, I think he's got a lot of problems. But I'll say that he evoked a lot of sympathy and empathy in me as I watched the show. Because the way that, that they treat him is really unconscionable, even though he's not a good guy. There are times when he does the right thing and gets no credit for it. And the way that they speak to him, and I'm talking about the Federation people on the ship, uh, on the show, the way that they talk to Quark is unconscionable. And if you had just replaced Quark with a human, with Cyrano Jones, let's say, and put that same, those same lines in there about, you know, uh, Quark, you know, go do this and that and the other thing, I, I think we would have found it very objectionable. But because he's an alien, right, it, it's somehow okay. And so it struck me as a strong streak of xenophobia that was running through a lot of the Starfleet officers when they treated, how they treated Quark. And I, I found it really distasteful. I felt sorry for the guy. I don't know. I am still early on in my Deep Space Nine rewatch. And Quark, there's several episodes where Quark directly puts the station in danger. Or uh, there's an episode where he invites a bunch of bad guys onto the sh- station when it's mostly evacuated and they try and steal Dax's symbiote. And this means death for Jadzia and Quark was just in it for money. And in the next episode, Quark is back tending the bar like nothing ever happened. So I think there's times where Quark does really bad things and that's never acknowledged. So I think there's, I think we're both, both of these things happen, both your side, your perspective and my perspective that are both really weird and they never get acknowledged. Yeah, I think I'd agree with I think I'd agree with what you're going for here is that it doesn't seem like they ever clearly established how they wanted to treat Quark because they certainly rehabilitate him at some point. You know, he doesn't stay as this, you know, really nefarious bad guy. And then later on they play him very differently where he's like, oh no, I would never get involved in anything really bad. Like when he's trying to 
when his uh, oh cousin Gala tries to get him involved in gun running. And he's like, oh, no, I would never do anything like that. Meanwhile, he was doing these things, as you said, right, trying to rip a, a living part of some other person out, right? I mean, the guy's already a, a quite quite lousy. Why wouldn't he do that? <laughs> but but suddenly later, it's morally objectionable, right? So they, they certainly were not consistent in the way they treated him. I'd agree with you on that for sure. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to blow up my earlier assertion that the Federation seems to be under military control. Let's talk about an episode where we actually do get a Federation civilian authority who seems to be a uh, the civilian equivalent of a badmiral, and that's uh, Galactic High Commissioner Ferris in the Galileo 7. So tell me why the M5 selected this episode. And by the way, as a reminder, this, of course, is the TOS episode where the shuttlecraft Galileo crash lands on a planet and Spock's in charge and has to get them off the planet. So tell me why this episode came up on the list. So for me, this was one of those first episodes that I remember watching as a kid with my dad. And I remember watching this and really just focusing on the Spock and the shuttlecraft side of things where they're trapped on this planet. They need to get the shuttlecraft working again so they can get back to the Enterprise and be rescued. And they know they're in a time crunch where the Enterprise has to get these supplies back to back to this other colony. And there's these creatures that attack and you know, one of the crew members dies. And the all the humans on the on the away team want to have like this like a funeral and a burial for their for their fallen crewmate. And Spock is very much, well, we don't have time for that. We need to get, if, if we don't, if we don't figure out how to get off this planet, we're all going to die. And we're, you know, we, we just don't have time for this. Why are we, why are we focusing on these, these kind of, these human burial rituals? Like, let's, let's try and get it back up in space. And I always just remember connecting with Spock in this situation and being like, yeah, this makes sense. Let's not... Why are we worrying about all these this bickering? Let's get the ship back to work and get the get the ship back up in space and let's go. Like, and my dad always thought that was funny. He was like, "Oh, well, that must be because you're." He would he would call me. Uh, he would say that I was half half Vulcan because I always saw the the logical side of things and always agreed with Spock on on most of the uh, most of the conundrums that he had. I think that the thing that he's missing in this is that it's one thing to be logical. But it's also another thing to have humility and to be aware of the fact that other people have different ways of living than you. And there might be the logical course of action, and there also might be the course of action that will get you the result that you want. And these things might not be the same. And as I watched this episode, I got to say, I, I, first of all, I was really tickled that, that the M5 uh, coughed this one up because I've actually used this episode in some of the in my day job in a leadership development course that I used to teach for people who were in their first supervisory roles. And we used it as a meditation on leadership styles. And so I would show, we would show clips of this and then we would ask like what, what, or actually we wouldn't show clips. We told people to go watch it and then they had to, they had to watch the episode before they came to class. But we would use this as a, as an example and say, okay, at this point, what should you do if you were in charge of this group of people, right? What are the different kinds of options? And not only what is the correct decision, but how should you communicate that decision in a way that is likely to be received and embraced by the other people? which is the part that I think Spock lacked. Yes. And I really enjoyed the, the one part, and I, actually, I shouldn't even say enjoyed. I, the one part I found very stimulating 
was when he was talking, I, I think it was to McCoy, I don't remember now, where he's basically self-examining and he's thinking, I have made every decision totally correct and I have performed the correct procedure in every single circumstance and I don't understand why I'm not being successful, which by the way, was the number one thing that young leaders would say when they would come to me in at work. And they would say, I'm having trouble on my team because I'm making all the right decisions and I don't know why the right things aren't happening, right? It, it, I, I have been in the room while people are telling me this and I'm trying to coach them and help them with it because that, that's actually what I do for a living is, is, is learning and development and organizational psychology stuff. And I really, really enjoyed that particular element of the episode because I think it speaks to something that a lot of people struggle with when they're in those kinds of roles. And I found it very human and very relevant to the human experience in day-to-day living. I just thought it was great. But uh, I think this also, you know, you you mentioned that that you saw this episode when you were quite young with your dad, right? It must have made an impression upon you. Yeah. And it it was, I don't know, maybe just, I don't know if I, I don't know if it's a chicken or the egg kind of a thing. Where if I saw this episode and made me and I connected with Spock and I was like, oh, I want to try and, you know, use him as a goal as somebody to be like. Or if I already had those kind of, you know, I was just very logical in the way I thought. And then I connected with Spock because I was already that way. But it's just something happened there. And, you know, Spock has always been one of my favorite characters because of because of this connection that I have. And, and, and I do agree that, you know, Spock made the right, was making the right choices, but it's how he, you know, he was uh, communicating them that caused a lot of issues. Totally agree. And by the way, one of my favorite things in modern times about this episode, as we record this, is if you look at Ferris's costume, it ties directly into Discovery. So it goes back to earlier what we were talking about, right? Like canon is really just a fan exercise and things we like to just imagine in our heads. But if you look at how that character is dressed in this blue sort of outfit with these silver accents all over it and have these like lines in it, it seems to me it ties directly into the Discovery blue uniform. There's a strong lineage there. And it could be unintentional, but it's something that I surely noticed. Yeah, that's I hadn't noticed that before. That's a really cool connection. If uh, it'd be, inter- I'd love to ask like if that was a, an intentional connection or if it just happened by accident. And you know what? I have no recollection of this, but I am I am sure that Gersha Phillips, is that her name? Gersha? I'm sure her name, first name is Gersha. She's a costume designer on Discovery. I forget her last name, but we can look it up if we wanted to. But I'm sure she's been asked this somewhere at some convention or event because it just seems, or, or it's already been discovered, <laughs> discovered, get it, that uh, she talked about this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, I'm sure she's already been asked about this. So someone on Twitter, find out the answer and, and tweet at us. Another thing that I'll say about this episode is that it is one of the episodes that I think definitely got the biggest rehabilitation in the remasters. Have you watched the remastered version of this or did you just watch the original? I, I, I know I watched the original back in the day, and then on Netflix now, they have the remaster. So I did watch the remaster. I, I, I'm probably more familiar with the remaster at this point than I am with the original. Which, by the way, is one of the great things about the Blu-ray sets, is that you get both. So you can actually compare, you know, scene by scene, and you can sort of <laughs> compare the, you know, terrible sort of original effects versus what they have now. And, you know, I was originally of two minds about these remasters and I I'm kind of okay with it, but I'm glad that we have the original still, which by the way, I'm, I'm still mad that like you can't get the original star Wars trilogy as it originally was. You can only get remasters. 
Yeah, I agree with you on that. I defend a lot of the things that they did in those, if you know, Star Wars remaster and they revised things. But I, you know, I think that it, you know, that that original Star Wars is is history, just like the these original episodes of Star Trek are history. And I think Star Trek did a better job there in that situation where they, here's the original and then here's the new one. We're not taking away the original. We're just you know we're playing with the with the new with the remaster and you can always go back to the original so i agree with what you said that you know it's it's a crime against cinematic history right and i realize that's kind of written big and you know i beg everyone's indulgence for being a little extremist about it but it's it's a crime against cinematic history that that we can't see the film that actually made star wars successful right you you can only see like a version of it that they made later and I think that that's sad. Now, having said that, you know, and we're diverting here, but that's okay. Let me hit you with the one defense that found purchase with me about it. And and we'll see, because I think this ties into the Star Trek remasters in a way, which is that when the original Star Wars was made, obviously they had no knowledge of Blu-rays, DVDs, people watching it at home. And so when they made the effects... They made the effects with the eye towards the fact that this was only going to be on screen for a half a second at a time, you know, a particular shot. And there are cases like, for instance, where they were inside a X-Wing fighter. And if you actually pause it and go in slow-mo, you'll notice that the stars were visible through the ribbing on the, you know, the metal part of the canopy on the TIE fighter. But... In the movie theater, the whole scene would have been a quarter of a second and you wouldn't have noticed it. But in the days of home video where you can replay, pause, you know, and you can take screenshots and really zoom in on stuff like the effects just don't hold up. So I think I could go as far as to say if you're going to remaster, maybe you can fix those things like that. Or something where, you know, if you look at some of the original effects, like you could see like these weird discolorations around some of the models because it, it just didn't match appropriately with the background in some spots. And, you know, maybe you can fix that digitally to make it hold up to a, a, a viewing at home on a DVD or a Blu-ray. But, you know, to just add in whole other things, whole new parts of the, the movie that weren't there, it's like, well, I, I get that that's okay and I get that you can do that, but... That's not the movie that that made Star Wars. And I feel like in the Star Trek remasters, they much more honored the originals than Star Wars did in their remasters. And I'm not trying to make up a, you know, Star Trek for Star Wars thing here. I'm, I'm really not. I'm just talking about, you know, how people are approaching rehabilitating old material for the modern age. And it seems to me that the folks dealing with Star Trek did a much better job of it. I'd be curious as to your opinion, because you're in both camps. No, I, I agree with you 100%. I, that's, I wish that there were less things in the Star Wars remasters, like the whole Han, Han shooting first or shooting second, whatever. I make changing that is a, a, a big deal. And I really don't like I don't like that they're going back and changing those kinds of things. It's it's supposed to be a remaster and bringing the special effects more up to date and do exactly what you said. Okay, let's return to Deep Space Nine. Let's talk about The Way of the Warrior. So this is the one where the Klingons show up on Deep Space Nine and Worf makes his first appearance on the station as well. Tell me why the M5 said we should talk about this episode. So this is the one... This is kind of the turning point in Deep Space Nine as a series where 
This is the one where Cisco grows the beard. So we get that uh, Riker reference, you know, where people think that, oh, next generation didn't get good until Riker grew the beard. And, you know, we get Worf. This is the really big push that the Dominion are the big bad guys for the, sh- for the series, that they're the adversaries that we need to be more focusing on. And everybody loves Deep Space Nine because of the the big war and the fact that it's not it's they're moving away from the episodic nature of the show and that it's more serialized and this is i feel like the really big turning point of okay this is the way the show is going to be or i guess this is a lot of people's favorite show because of what they did and started in this episode did you ever watch that show in the 90s, Babylon 5? No, I didn't. I, I think that's one that I, like I, I'm interested in it, but I want to, I'm kind of a completionist to where I want to watch everything. So I know if I get started, uh, I'm going to want to watch all of it. And then there's a lot of it there. So it's kind of daunting to, to start. What would be interesting for you is that it is a show that promised a completely consistent and completely controlled canon. And they pretty much said right at the beginning, if there's something that doesn't make sense or if we've, it's because you just don't have all the information yet and you'll, it'll make sense like three years later. And if something still doesn't make sense at the end of the show, it's because we made a mistake. <laughs> so they, they really do have a, a very hardcore canon because the majority of the show was written by one guy. So it, it really is, you know, if you like that sort of thing, an internally consistent world that has consistent rules, they, they certainly do have that. And I'm a huge fan of it, and I will gladly be your Sherpa. So reach out to me on Twitter, and I'm, I'm ha- I'll happily guide you through it. But the reason I bring it up in this context is because there's this one particular character, and every season he has a completely different hairstyle. And so it, it's sort of like the Cisco's beard of Babylon 5, right? It's like when the, when this guy is bald, it's getting good. When he's, you know, got this particular haircut, it's getting crazy. And, you know, when he has long hair, it's kind of meh. So <laughs> it's it's I guess that must be a rule in sci-fi universes, right? The uh, hairstyles dictate something about the show. Yeah, it's like your lighthouse for what the, the season is going to be. Yeah, exactly. All right, fantastic. So let's talk about another episode. Let's talk about a discovery episode. Let's talk about magic to make the sanest man go mad. Probably the most standalone of all the discovery episodes, a Harry Mud episode, or as, oh my gosh, Rain Wilson liked to characterize him, a hardcore Fenton Mud, where we have the time loops and we have Dance With Me for Science and we have Exploding Discovery and we have the team finally starting to work together. Tell me why the M5 says we should, we should talk about this. Yeah, like you said, it's the, the, this is the episode where everyone really starts to work together. And this is another one where it's the most unlike episode of Discovery that we've seen so far, where it's it's a bottle, it's literally a bottle episode, and but there are points where they're having fun, where well, Mud is having fun of just you know killing every kill, killing the ship and killing everybody in different ways and enjoying himself as he's trying to figure out how what makes the Discovery special. But it, we get, we get to see the this is where Ash Tyler and Burnham you know really kick off their romance this is an episode where we kind of find out more about the relationship between Colbert and Stamets how that started and it's just an all-around really good episode how did you feel about the new version of Harry Mudd so the TOS version of Harry Mudd I think is kind of problematic in today's world so I thought it was I don't know I it's weird 
don't know. I like the tie-in to the old series that they did. And I'm, I don't know. I, I think I need to see more side-by-side of a TOS Harry Mudd and Discovery Harry Mudd because I think that TOS Harry Mudd might be a little more... I don't know, like sexist in today's today's uh, uh, TV world. I don't think you could really do do that on the show. So I think they did a good thing in kind of changing and tweaking his character. Never forget that the original Harry Mudd was a straight up 100% legit slave trader in TOS. Yeah, so he's not a good guy. He's a guy that has fun. So I don't know, maybe that's uh, that's kind of fun to watch someone having fun. How would you compare this episode against all the others of Discovery? I mean, why why is this one the one that was selected out of all the other episodes? I think that this one is one that it takes a minute to breathe, where we're not there. There is a big bad guy, and there's a there's a ticking clock that we need that the crew needs to you know solve the problem. But we get to have a lot more character moments between people and kind of figure out what makes. What makes a lot of these people tick? Well, what makes Michael Michael Burnham tick, and kind of forces her to address this whole thing? Like, what's what is she going to do with Ash Tyler? Like, are they is she going to kind of keep him at, at arm's length, or is she going to invite him in and have a relationship? So, I think that's where it really excels. I don't think they left a lot of room in Discovery just because of the way that they wanted to to shoot it and the kind of show they wanted to make for really any space and leisure in examining the characters and having any personal moments. And it's my hope that with these short tracks, we're going to get a little more of that. And it's my hope that in season two, we get a little bit more of that. Because when you look back at, I think, all of the original Star Treks, all of them, you know, Enterprise, uh, Voyager, it doesn't matter, they gave themselves the space to try to experiment a little and to divert and to do these sort of interesting episodes where we really got to learn about some things. I mean, the whole purpose of Galileo 7 was what would happen if Spock was in charge for a while. Yeah. Right? And that Galileo 7 was the episode, right? Just for uh, an aside, let's talk about Devil in the Dark, right? That episode, which was a lot of people would point to as one of the best of TOS, came about because the guy who played the Horda came up with the Horda and he, and he walked into the office and he came in with the crazy looking blanket and he's like, Hey, look at this cool character I made. And Gene Kuhn is like, that's awesome. I'm going to write an episode about that. And that became devil in the dark. Like the, the Horda was invented and then they wrote an episode about it. And I think it's because they had that leisure to kind of do some things. Whereas I think that one of the things I'm cautious about in discovery is that because they're so hell bent on the season long arc that they're just trying to advance the plot in such a hell-bent sort of way that they're not giving themselves the space to have those kinds of moments in the show. And I, I as a viewer, I kind of miss that. And so I was glad to see that included in this episode, and I was glad to see them doing that in Short Treks. How about you? I agree 100%. I, I do like, in general, doing long arcs where they can they can tell a nice big story, but... I do, I do agree that with Discovery specifically, there's not a lot of exploring what the characters are thinking and what the characters are like, or at least not as much as, I, as I'd like to see. Because uh, I'd, I'd love to see more about Burnham and what this kind of this duality of Vulcan life versus human, her, you know, her human genetics versus her Vulcan upbringing. 
and what life on the discovery means for that where now she's surrounded by humans and there's i don't think there's any other vulcans on discovery so she's kind of this you know she's now in the real world you know what does this mean for her and does she kind of give up on some of those vulcan tendencies or like you know that's the kind of thing i want to see more of and hopefully we can see that more in season two given that we've been talking about the fact that sometimes they can allow themselves to experiment. Let's talk about an episode that I think is the paragon of that, Trials and Tribulations, where Deep Space Nine crossovers with the much-beloved David Gerald-written episode of TOS, The Trouble with Tribbles. So this is, I think, a perfect example of the kind of thing that you can only get if you allow yourself a little bit of space to experiment and to do sort of these what if sort of things, right? Like what if the crew of Deep Space Nine went back to a TOS episode, right? We aren't going to get anything like this in Discovery, I don't think, all right? It could be wrong, but I, I just don't see themselves, I just don't see them doing that sort of thing in, in the new show. But I really enjoyed it. And the M5 flagged it as an episode for us to talk about. So tell me why you think this is a particularly good or meaningful episode of Star Trek. For me, I think this is more on like the technical achievement side of things of not necessarily. I think it's just just more of a fun episode where we get to go back in time and mess around with the TOS crew with our new characters. But just the the fact that they were able to have this time travel episode and digitally insert our new characters into old scenes and nothing nothing really breaks the canon if you want to really analyze canon but they just get to have fun and we get to see you know Dax crushing on on Spock and we get to see Cisco kind of you know get to meet one of his idols and talk to Kirk and it's just a really fun fun episode that I'm I'm yeah like you said I don't know if we'll be able to get stuff like this again for in discovery I highly recommend to any listeners out there that it really is worth your time to watch both the episodes back to back. Go watch the TOS episode and then watch the DS9 episode right after, you know, and just just watch them as one experience and I think it brings a whole lot more of an appreciation to it and I'd agree with you that as just as a technical achievement, it's unbelievable that that we're able to do these things nowadays. An, another example of this that comes to mind is: Did you ever happen to see the Star Trek Continues series with uh, Vic Mignogna and and the rest of the crowd? No, I don't think I have. So, if, if you're not familiar, right, they actually tried to create a a series of episodes that completed the five year mission of TOS. Okay. That takes it from the episode Turnabout Intruder right up to when the Enterprise returns to Earth at the end of the five-year mission. And why is why does Kirk stop being an admiral? I mean, uh, stop being a captain and become an admiral. Why did everyone leave the ship? Why did the Enterprise require such a massive refit that it turned it into the you know TMP Enterprise that we saw? Why did that happen? And so it's really a a continuation that tries to explain that and fill in the gaps. And I would heartily recommend it to all of our listeners, you know, my, the five or 10 of you that are out there, please go check it out. It is absolutely incredible. But besides the fact that it was incredibly well done and incredibly well acted, as a technical achievement, it's stunning because when they produced the show, they actually tried to use all the lights and lenses and technology from the late 60s. And so it actually looks like original Star Trek. 
even though it was filmed in, you know, modern day with modern day equipment, you know, and with all the things that we have today, it, it is in, indistinguishable. You know, if you were, if you didn't know the characters, you know, if you didn't know William Shatner as, as Kirk and, you know, all of that, and you just like were to watch a couple scenes, you would not be able to tell that which one was the original series and which one was made today on Star Trek Continues. It, it really was a technical achievement that they did, you know, the makeup and the hair and I mean, everything. It really was something to see. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the, there's a, a, sc- a screen grab right now of, it's after the bar fight where all the Starfleet officers are in that lineup and Kirk is walking up and down the line and... You've got Scotty and Chekhov and then Chief O'Brien and Bashir and then, you know, and, and it's seamless. Like you, I'd be interested to show somebody this episode first, the DS9 version first, and just get their thoughts on it. Like, you know, what, what things line up if they don't know the characters and know that they're not supposed to be there. I'm, I'm really curious what somebody would think watching this episode first as an introduction. One of my favorite little trivia bits about Trials and Tribulations is that when they recreated all the original sets, you know, of of Deep Space Station K7 and of the Enterprise, they didn't let Avery Brooks or Terry Farrell on the sets until they actually appeared on camera. And so when they're looking around, like with a sense of wonder, that's really them looking around at like a sense of wonder because they were not allowed to see any of it until they were brought in on the actual day of filming for the first take. That's really cool. Yeah, I always like little things like that. You know, it makes it, I don't know, it makes it more cool, you know, when you go back and you watch the episode to appreciate it again. Yeah, and didn't they bring back the original Klingon actor to play his, his old character again? Or did they recast him? No, no, no. That was the original guy. Yeah, that's what I thought. Did you ever hear the story of how they found him? No. Oh, Tyler. I, check this out, all right? This this is beyond ridiculous. I forget the name of the actor, right? But I'm sure I can look it up in a minute, but we'll forget that. But the, the, actor, the actor guy, he was the original actor in the 60s show. And Ira Stephen Bear and the rest of the Deep Space Nine writers were, were talking about Trials and Tribulations before they made it. And they were thinking, we would love to do this, but there's no possible way. We can't, we cannot produce this episode. It's not technically possible. There's too many things in the way. We don't know if any of the actors are available. Hell, we don't even know if the guy is still acting. So, you know, if he's not acting anymore, we can't get him. We might have to write around that. So what is it we can do? And so they decided to go out to lunch to some pizza place. And they're sitting around at this pizza place having lunch, still talking about how impossible it's going to be to make the episode and how they would love to do it, but they can't do it. And Ira Bear looks over and he sees the guy in the pizza place eating lunch. The actor happened to be sitting there having his lunch. And they're like, oh, that's that's him. We got to go talk to him. So he gets up and goes and talks to him, which, by the way, is a breach of protocol because you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to talk to an agent. You know, you're supposed to talk to casting who talks to the agent who talks to the actor, right? You're not really supposed to do it that way, I guess. It was kind of a breach of protocol. But he was totally game. And it wasn't until they got him on board that a lot of other things fell into place and they were able to do the episode. But I mean, you want to talk about the weirdest coincidence in like the history of all Star Trek production? That clearly has to be up there in the top five. Yeah, that's crazy. It's just like one of those things like it's meant to be. Yeah, exactly. Right. And what was great was I got to hear Ira tell this story at, at the Star Trek convention. And when he tells it, it's much more embellished and, you know, it's much more fantastic when he tells it. Right. So it, uh, it, it it's lessened in the telling because you're hearing it from me. But if you ever get the chance, go listen to Ira tell it. He's, he's much better at it. So 
Tyler, we've talked about a couple of different episodes. We've talked about a bunch of different episodes. And we've talked about why you wanted to be on the show with me. But what I don't understand yet is why Star Trek is important to you. I think part of it is kind of those memories of growing up with my growing up and watching it with my dad and my dad's still around and we still watch Star Trek and stuff but there's a lot of those kind of growing up memories there's but for me Star Trek is kind of it represents like the ideals that we should be I think we should be striving towards as humanity and maybe you know and i think maybe there's some like you've pointed out a few holes in it where maybe it's a little too militaristic and maybe they should be have locks on the holodeck doors but i think in general like having this society that where everybody is equal and everybody works together and the the main goal is to explore and not conquer or you know make money or it's a thing that I think that humanity should strive to to become more like. What are those ideals? Well, like uh, working together. Like it would be really cool as if we could unite as as humanity and kind of set aside some of those a lot of these like really if you think about it really petty differences just because oh you were born over there I was born over here we we're not supposed to like each other so we don't like each other. There's a lot of that petty stuff. We can kind of would be really cool, great if we could get rid of that and focus on the, you know, if assuming there's no other aliens out there, it would still be really great to focus on the betterment of humanity as a whole and not and not the selfish stuff of, oh, well, I'm going to make I'm going to try and make money or I'm going to try and, you know, make my country better than their, that other country. It's, those are the kind of goals that I think that we should be focusing on looking out to the stars and expanding and exploring. I think those are some beautiful thoughts, my man. And I have to tell you that I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I really have, but the M five is a harsh taskmaster and he is signaling me, Tyler, that it's time for the Kobayashi Maru. The Kobayashi Maru is a challenging and difficult test cunningly prepared by the M five should you not only survive the test, but pass it as well, the M5 will award you an honorary Star Trek title. Are you ready to face the Kobayashi Maru, Tyler? I, I am ready. I do not believe in a no-win scenario. Very good. M5, load the Kobayashi Maru simulation and prepare to record Tyler's responses. Loading. Question one. Which is the nicer uniform, TNG dress whites or monster maroons? Maroon. Which is the better way to start your day, Pejuda cold or Pejuda hot with lemon? cold. If you were to be held prisoner by a Star Trek baddie, would you rather it be the Shellyak or the Breen? I think I'd go with the Shellyak. Who's chasing you? The Crystalline Entity or the Doomsday Machine? Doomsday Machine, 100%. You are a 24th century Ferengi child, and you have just obtained a whole box of Marauder Mo action figures. Take them out of the box and play with them for loads of Ferengi kid fun, or leave them in the box, because it might be a good investment. Definitely leave them in the box. Simulation complete, M5. Please compute the results and tell us if our guest has passed the Kobayashi Maru. Analyzing. Tyler, I am pleased to tell you that the M5 has calculated that you have passed the Kobayashi Maru simulation. Congratulations, my man. Thank you. I am surprised you picked the Shellyak. They seem to me to be incredibly detailed and very confusing and difficult people to deal with. Well, you know, I like a good challenge. Fair enough. Fair enough. And now, 
the M5, who has analyzed your answers, will award you an honorary Star Trek title on behalf of our podcast. M5, what title shall we award our guest? Tyler is awarded the title of Chief Scripts Writer for Holodeck Amusements at the Antares Starfleet Shipyards. So, there you go. All right. Can I, am I able to focus on maybe putting locks on the doors? Or is that a, a, a different department? You totally are, man. That is totally approved. In fact, please do that. You, you have my, my endorsement. Awesome. Tyler, please tell people how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Ronald Foos. And if you want to hear me play Dungeons & Dragons with some friends, you can hear me on Nerdy People Play D&D. Tyler, thank you so much for being part of the Trek Profiles podcast. Well, thank you. It was a blast. this installment of the Trek Profiles podcast. And before we offer a Trek quote to close this episode, I'd like to remind you that you may send us your kind-hearted feedback, your grilling tips for a nice Denobulan sausage, or a rocking Trek filk song celebrating the joys of a green shake extra green to feedback at trekprofiles.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Trek Profiles. Anything you send us may be used in the show or may be cast into the mirror universe for the glory of the Empire. This week, I leave you with a quote from Trip Tucker, who in the episode Carbon Creek said, quote, Two Vulcans stroll into a bar, hustle a few games of pool, and walk out with an armload of TV dinners. Sounds like an old episode of The Twilight Zone, unquote. Thanks for listening, and live long and prosper. Prosper.